from PRX. Today on Studio 360, long before Margaret Atwood wrote The Handmaid's Tale or its imminent sequel, The Testaments, there was a little-known figure who inspired it all. The Handmaid's Tale is dedicated to Mary Webster because she is an example of a female person wrongly accused. American Witch Hunts and the new resonance of Margaret Atwood's dystopian novel. Plus... Anne Dowd, who plays Aunt Lydia on the current TV adaptation on playing terrifying people. And I love going to the lower depths. I just think that's a ticket to heaven. Today on Studio 360, a whole hour about the new resonance of Margaret Atwood's dystopian novel, right after this. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. We learned to whisper almost without sound. In the semi-darkness, we could stretch out our arms when the aunts weren't looking and touch each other's hands across space. That's Margaret Atwood in 1986 reading from her novel The Handmaid's Tale, which had just come out the year before. We learned to lip read, our heads flat on the beds, turned sideways, watching each other's mouths. In 2017, of course, The Handmaid's Tale was adapted into a TV series starring Elizabeth Moss. My name is Alfred. I had another name, but it's forbidden now. So many things are forbidden now. The third season just ended. But in September, Margaret Atwood is delivering her sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. It's called The Testaments, set 15 years after the first novel. The details are still under wraps, but the novel has already impressed the judges of the annual Man Booker Prize, the Testaments is one of 13 semifinalists for the award. On this hour of Studio 360, we're looking at The Handmaid's Tale, the book, and the TV show, but also how other writers today are exploring some of the same ideas and themes that Margaret Atwood took on a third of a century ago. But first, what inspired her? Atwood wrote The Handmaid's Tale as a response to the fundamentalist surge at the time, the rise of the right-wing evangelical movement. It's time for God's people to come out of the closets, out of the churches, and change America! As well as the Islamic Revolution in Iran. But another inspiration was the story of a woman in 17th century Puritan New England named Mary Webster. Seven p.m. I was hanged for living alone, for having blue eyes and sunburned skin, tattered skirts, few buttons, oh yes, and breasts. The rope was an improvisation. Trust hands, rag in my mouth. With time, they'd have thought of axes. 
name is Bridget Marshall. I'm an associate professor of English here at UMass Lowell. And I did research on some witchcraft cases that happened before Salem, and one of them was Mary Webster of Hadley, Massachusetts. Hadley is a small, small community of Puritans. Church is pretty central to their lives. There's also absolutely a baseline level of acceptance of and belief in witchcraft, that it's happening, that witches are talking to to the devil, and that the devil is active and walking around in New England causing trouble for the Puritans. 9 p.m. The bonnets come to stare, the dark skirts also, the upturned faces in between, mouths closed so tight they're lipless. I can see down into their eye holes and nostrils. I can see their fear. I can always do a good imitation of the Wicked Witch of the Wizard of Oz any old time. And you're a little dog, too. My name is Margaret Atwood, and I may or may not be related to Mary Webster. Some days, my grandmother would say we were related to her, and on other days, she would deny the whole thing (laughs) because it wasn't very respectable. I was actually trying to write a novel about her, but unfortunately, I didn't know enough about the late 17th century to actually be able to really do it. But I did write a long narrative poem called Half-Hanged Mary because she only got half-hanged. 10 p.m. Well, God, now that I'm up here with maybe some time to kill away from the daily finger work, leg work, work at the hen level, we can continue our quarrel, the one about free will. So January of 1685, Philip Smith is very, very ill. Now, Philip Smith is a leading light of the community of Hadley. He is uh, very involved in the government, very involved in the church, a very well-respected man. And this community says, wait a minute, why is Philip Smith suffering these torments? Well, in the Puritan mind, they don't know what's happening, and they think it must be a witch. If someone who is so good and so pious could be in such pain and be in such torment, there must be a witch involved. And they very quickly draw the line to Mary Webster. Mary's house was right on the highway. And if someone was taking a cart full of hay, for instance, they would say that sometimes their horses wouldn't go past her house, that they would stop. But if the man would go in and beat Mary, that then the horse could pass just fine. So there was this idea that her supernatural powers could be stopped if they somehow physically assaulted her. Based on those earlier examples, they decide that to help Philip Smith so he won't feel so sick anymore, they will go and do something to Mary. Twelve midnight. My throat is taut against the rope, choking off words and air. I'm reduced to knotted muscle. Blood bulges in my skull. My clenched teeth hold it in. I bite down on despair. Well, you do think about these things off and on for a long time because you think about things to which you don't have the answers. And the thing that we will never know is, how did she make it through the night? 
what was she doing all night when she was dangling from a tree? You know, what was she thinking about? 3 a.m. I dangle with strength, going out of the wind seethes in my body. I clench my fists. My lungs flail as if drowning. I call on you as a witness. I did no crime. This is a crime I will not acknowledge. Leaves and wind hold on to me. I will not give in. So Cotton Mather, a minister and author, in 1689 publishes Memorable Providences, and it includes a very detailed account of Mary Webster and Actually, I would say even more detailed about Philip Smith, her supposed victim. Mr. Philip Smith, son of virtuous parents, deacon of the church in Hadley, was murdered with a hideous witchcraft that filled all those parts of New England with astonishment. Cotton Mather's Memorable Provinces is 1689. 1692 is the Salem Witch Hysteria. They put 150 people in jail and murder 20 of them for accusations of witchcraft. Memorable Providences sets a lot of the stage for, for what happens in Salem, for that hysteria, right? It's feeding into this idea, witches are among us, look at the terrible things they're doing. Men like Philip Smith, good Christian men, are being killed by witches, quite literally. To me, it's one of the foundational moments in, in American history, the Salem trials. And the foundational part of it is you can't trust your neighbors. So, you know, think of what the bad thing is to be at the moment. They might secretly be one of those bad things. So it isn't until much later, in fact, 1767, that we have the first mention in any history about her being hanged. And so it's a later historian who gives us that detail. Cotton Mather's line says that they gave disturbance to her. And so what exactly uh, the disturbance was, it's not quite clear, but we do know that she lives uh, 11 years after the uh, Philip Smith incident. So she definitely, no matter how much she was disturbed, whether it was by hanging or something else, she still survived him. Six a.m. Sun comes up, huge and blaring. I would like to say that my hair turned white overnight, but it didn't. Instead, it was my heart, bleached out like meat in water. Also, I'm about three inches taller. Don't say I'm not grateful. Most will only have one death. I will have two. Yeah, so The Handmaid's Tale is dedicated to Mary Webster because she is an example of a female person wrongly accused. But she's slightly a symbol of hope because they didn't actually manage to kill her. She, she made it through. Well, I think it's important to note that Mary Webster did not have a voice in her church. She did not have a voice in her government. She did not have anyone who was uh, going to look out for her rights. And I think there's resonances here today where women do have more rights, but if we don't stand up and continue to defend those rights, we will lose many of them. 8 a.m. When they came to harvest my corpse, open your mouth, close your eyes, cut my body from the rope. Surprise, surprise, I was still alive. I fell to the clover, breathed it in, and bared my teeth at them in a filthy grin. You can imagine how that went over. 
Now I only need to look out at them through my sky-blue eyes. They see their own ill will staring them in the forehead and turn tail. Before, I was not a witch. But now, I am one. That story was produced by Daniel Guimet. Thanks to Kristen DeMercurio, who read excerpts from Atwood's poem. Coming up, how to humanize one of the most monstrous characters in The Handmaid's Tale. Rule number one, and you learn this early, is no judgment. Because judgment shuts all doors, in my opinion. So if the hope is to meet that character and, and come to know that character, like a relationship or a friendship, you got to be patient, you got to be respectful. And Dowd on her performance of Aunt Lydia and her long career of other scene-stealing roles. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. We are, I guess... The right phrase is probably girding our loins for Margaret Atwood's sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. The Testaments is being published in September. One of the most terrifying characters in The Handmaid's Tale is Aunt Lydia. She's an enforcer in Gilead, the Christian theocracy that America has become. In the Hulu series, she's played by Anne Dowd, who won an Emmy last year for her performance. Such spoiled girls you are. You might not have heard of her until recently, but you're probably a fan without knowing it. She played Tom Hanks' sister in Philadelphia, appeared as many different characters over the years on Law & Order. In fact, for decades now, Anne Dowd has played so many scene-stealing supporting roles. Recently as Viggo Mortensen's mother-in-law in Captain Fantastic, as Tony Collette's eccentric friend in Hereditary. Would you like to come in with me? I'm sorry, really, I, um, I can't, I I really did forget something. My son died. Oh, I'm so sorry. Four months ago, the little one was seven. I've been coming here for a couple of months now, and it has helped. It doesn't make it easier, obviously, but sometimes it makes it less lonely. And Dad, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Before I start, do you have just the slightest Irish lilt in your voice? I do, and I'm not sure why that is, as I've never been to Ireland, but my background is Irish. Yeah. Well, Dowd, right? There you go. But it's more than a little Irish. It's like you were born there and came here at eight or something. It's funny. <laughs> I don't know what it's about, but it's, it is yeah. present. Yeah, it is yep. indeed. Um and so before we get into all of your newish mega success as an actor, uh, I want to talk about how you began the whole life. This is your life, Ann Dowd. So, uh, <laughs> Thank you. Um, was acting always the plan when you were growing up? No, I went to college uh, and I was pre-med for four years huh. at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh-huh. So I did pre-med there and also took acting classes and did plays and towards the end of my experience, I had an organic chemistry teacher, Mike McGrath, who said, you don't seem happy, so you don't have to do that, you know. Uh, and so then I, in my senior year of college, I auditioned for an acting school 
in Chicago. And uh, then I went. Really? And didn't didn't take MCATs or apply to medical school or anything? Uh, I stopped just short. Good for you. Finding it just in time. <laughs> just in time. Rather than have to give up after eight years of medical school. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. You seem like a doctor. You would have been a fine doctor. <laughs> well, I would have, you know, I would have enjoyed it, but I don't think I'm, I don't think I chose incorrectly. Yeah. It doesn't haunt me, in other words. Right. Uh, like every actor in New York, subsequently, you got a role on uh, Law & Order. Loved it. Yeah. Loved every Law & Order thing I ever did. Yeah. But which which did, I mean, I only slightly exaggerate saying every actor in New York. I in think the, so. In it's 90s, a rite of passage. Right? Yeah, and you, here's, here's a scene from uh, that uh, episode, first season of Law & Order. You're working in an organ transplant place. And you can track where every kidney came from? Sure, and where it goes. For example, this morning in Miami, a 14-year-old boy died in a diving accident, and tomorrow, a 63-year-old potato farmer in Boise will get his kidney. Unbelievable. Not really. It gets packed in ice. Federal Express does the rest. I don't recognize her at all. Literally? No. I would have said... I I swear it's you. (laughs) I mean, I slightly remember, but yeah. What a long time ago. But, I mean, 1991 doesn't sound like forever ago to me. No, not to me either. Yeah. One of your roles that, again, I, I watched the show at the time, but until I was preparing for this, like, whoa, yeah. Oh, Freaks and Geeks, the the, <gasps> the beloved I know. cult hit of 1999. Uh, uh, you played this uh, character called Cookie Kelly. <laughs> yeah, uh, I love her so much. Who was, again, a problematic person, mother of uh, yeah. uh, the character played by Busy, Busy Phillips. Phillips, the doll. Here's here's a clip of of you when you <laughs> when you're ca- catching your daughter, your character's daughter, in a lie. What street is it on? Ben Harbor Street. You are a lying brat. I knew it. I told you. I'm not lying. You guys just can't believe that I can make a friend who's rich and smart. Oh, she's not smart. No, she is. She's really smart. I swear to God, she's smart. She's a bum, like all your other friends. What's happening? It's this car. You're driving around town, you're tramping it up in that car. I know what you do. Yeah, well, you should know. I learned it from you. You're grounded for good. You got me? Newsflash, you're not my father, fat ass. Damn right I'm not. Oh, that's it. We're selling the car. No, that's my car. Aunt Kathy gave me that car. Oh, yeah? Well, your Aunt Kathy spent $1,000 of my money snorting up a nose. So as far as I'm concerned, that car is mine. That's Ann Dowd. (laughs) Ha! What a blast that was. Uh, You were great in that. I loved it. Yeah. And you know the guy in the back who says, what's going on? Yeah. I had to literally who not Who just look. sort of wakes up and notices. Yeah. That's the writer. That's Mike White. Uh-huh. That's the writer. And they were all, they all looked like they were 16. And, and he subsequently created uh, the HBO series Enlightened. I mean, he's, you know, I couldn't look at him because I would burst out laughing every time. What's going on? I just thought, are you kidding yeah. me? So many times you literally had to say, don't laugh, don't laugh. Because they throw you lines to say. Yeah. Uh, right there on the spur of the moment, I think, oh, my God, uh, if I can get this out without howling, I, I will. You also had that uh, working middle-class semi-Boston accent down really I thought nicely. it was New York. Really? I didn't know what it was. Uh, but when I went into the audition, I thought, it's got to be something like this. Yeah, yeah. And they let me do it. Yeah. I was so grateful. It was convincing. <laughs> whatever, whatever, I loved whatever, it. Whatever it was. Um, I had a blast. Yeah. I really enjoyed it immensely. Yeah. And you were kind of in your rough way, that was a kind of sexy role. Yeah, skinny. Yeah. I'm watching the I'm weight. not just saying that, just in general. Her, she yeah. obviously was a, somebody yeah. for whom... Someone put makeup and hair yeah, and you know, a little cleavage and we're, we're going there. All that. Um, 
in the first season of True Detective, you played the serial killer's uh, <laughs> sister. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, love interest companion. Oh God! Here's a clip of you uh, with Woody Harrelson. Where's Billy Childers? Old Bill? Yeah. He's in this house, Mister. Uh-huh. This isn't his. <laughs> where, where, who, who do you uh, who do you live here with? I think you should go now. Uh, where is he? All around us. Before you were born. And after you die. I loved that, that sister in uh, True Detective. Never got half a chance for a life and somehow found a way to survive. That always intrigues me. Yeah. Uh, given the worst odds, found a way to have a life that to her has meaning. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- that impulse to generosity and kindness about this the fictional character who who is not in the straight and narrow or in some cases much worse than that it, it, that's is that part of how you f- are able to enact them not as a caricature sympathetically even if they're bad people well the way i like to describe it would be rule number 1 and you learn this early is no judgment because judgment shuts all doors in my opinion so if the hope is to meet that character and, and come to know that character, like a relationship or a friendship, uh-huh. you got to be patient, you got to be respectful, and you can't come in with an attitude of, you know what, you've blown it. Right. You're you got a problem. You're Hitler, and I'm going to play you like Hitler. That's it. Right. You're yeah. weird and yeah. you're mean and you're yeah. just sick. Yeah. That that then nothing comes from that. Right. And plus, it's the imagination. It's make believe. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. So in real uh, life, you can judge. Yeah, in real life, I just sit there judging left and right. Good, good, glad to hear it. <laughs> but uh, it's just it's it's a great way to get to know a character. To yeah. bring, you know, here's a little bit about me. Tell me a little bit about you. Let's see how far we can go. So, here. like a shrink of your own character, maybe. So, a bit? well, I think it's more like a friendship, right? You know, but an intelligent friendship, right. let us say. So, most of these roles, the ones I remember, are these great. Uh, smallish character supporting roles. I remember someone saying to me, an agent, long time ago, just saying, you know, you're, you really, you realize you're only going to play character roles. And I remember thinking in my head, ah, you're a fool, because you're wrong, number one, and you just said the worst thing you can say to an actor. Yeah. Not that a character role is a bad thing, but just any limitation. Right. Anyone who says you can only do this, right away you have to laugh and say, ah, you're yeah. mistaken. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the role that I think first got you a lot of attention. Uh, in the film Compliance, you played uh, this character, Sandra, who is based on a real person. And for people who haven't didn't see it, haven't seen it yet, uh, describe that movie. Well, it is based on a true story, something that happened over 70 times in 34 states in this country, of a man pretending to be a detective who makes a phone call to usually fast food restaurants on a busy night and gets the manager to take in one of the, her waitresses uh, and keep her in the office because she supposedly has stolen something. And it's what ensues when this would-be detective, what is the word, manipulates over many hours the situation and that finally ends up in a full-blown sexual assault. As a, it, yes. It's just horrific. And, and you play the, this, this fast the, food the manager. The fast food manager. Let's, let's watch. Yes. And I have your regional manager, Robert Gilmore, on the other right. line. We need to act now. Okay. Your responsibility is to facilitate that action. So, I, I, you know, it's your job. You understand? Yes. Yes, I do. And I'll do everything 
you know, that you need. Okay, so I'm gonna need you to have her stripped down now, look through everything. Okay. Um, he says, it's time to, let's just try to, the faster you do it, honey, the faster we're finished. Uh, oh, yeah. It reminded me, I mean, again, because now the world knows you as Aunt Lydia in Handmaid's Tale, of a person who thinks she's doing good mm. is suddenly doing this awful, awful thing. There's yeah. some parallel there, right? Yeah, it's a funny thing. Uh, you know, that, that person, that person, Sandra, somehow... Your character. Yes, in compliance, long time ago lost the awareness that... You have your own sense of what's right and what's wrong. It doesn't come from authority. It comes from you. You're raised a certain way, but you at some point realize, you know what? Uh, like, had she had some sense of balance about it, she would have said to the guy, listen, it's a Friday night. I, I, I'm sorry the situation is happening. I'll call you back. Or, yeah, but you gotta, yeah. you'll have to send someone because I've got to get back to work here, right. and I can't do these things you're right. suggesting. I'm just right. not comfortable. Right. I mean, how hard would that be? Right. It's not hard. Right. It, for her, it never occurred to her that you can say to someone, who says he's a detective, no. Now, Lydia, you know, again, going back to that notion, don't judge, see if you can figure out why she does what she does. Yeah. So she's in a world that has gone to hell. She, Bruce Miller suggested, our showrunner, that she was probably a teacher. That's hugely helpful in her past life before uh-huh. Gilead. So imagine her in a public school, the promiscuity, the cursing, uh, the 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 disres- no relationship to God. All dis- of the things that caused the, the world to go dystopia to, to happen. That's yeah. it. And and then you know the beautiful Earth destroyed. Uh, and then you can't have babies. I think her realization that in order to write this, there can be no half measures. It has to be full on. It has to be extreme, or there is no way that we're going to get things back on track. Right. I think she's committed to that and believes in right. it. Right. Which makes it all the more terrifying in yeah. its. Yeah. Plausibility. I mean, I think yeah. she feels she has a good yeah. reason, and if it's too too much, I'm sorry, girls. I want to I want to talk about one scene in particular from the f- the first episode of this second season. Um, and listeners, there may be some spoilers if you're worried about that. So the handmaids. Thank you for listening. The handmaids, <laughs> led by by Elizabeth Moss's character, offered defy uh-huh. uh, Lydia and refused to stone another of the handmaids, uh, Janine. And Offred is spared because she's pregnant. You have quite an adventure ahead of you. And we are going to make sure you get absolutely everything you need. We certainly won't have any more theatrics, will we? (laughs) Such nonsense. Such a waste of energy. And for what? But nothing. Janine isn't nothing. Do you think you've done her a kindness? Janine is on her way to the colonies. She will suffer because of you. Every handmaid who followed you into disobedience will face the consequences, but not you. You are with child. You are protected. But you know that. Such a brave girl, aren't you? Standing in defiance, but risking nothing. Now... Eat. I was just thinking, how does one deal with a teenager? I have a teenager now. <laughs> and you begin with uh, bright spirit uh, because she is pregnant, and that's what matters most, period, that this baby survive. So we're going to make it hopeful. I think Lydia's hoping she's learned a lesson, 
we're not going to have defiance. We're not going to have nonsense, right? Right. And let's keep it. Hey, honey, we can do it the easy way yeah, or the hard way. Right. Let's do it the easy way. No, that was way. like a certain kind of motherish yeah, authority let's, figure. Yeah. Let's hope for the best here, and yeah. then when it's clear that, in point of fact, she has learned nothing. And is still a tough and it's rebel defiant as ever, right. and just thinks she's the greatest thing that walked in a red cloak. Ah, uh, that's when Lydia just you know. I think underneath, from the very beginning, she's on the cusp of listen, smarty. Seeing you in the your other great uh, one of your other great performances recently in Hereditary. Oh yeah, where you play a different kind of religiously motivated uh, <laughs> freak. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you you grew up Catholic. I did. Went to Catholic college. Went to a Catholic graduate school. Well, I went. Yes, in fact, yeah. Right. Uh, so, are, are you still religious? Are you Catholic? Are you religious? I am not religious. Oh. No, I have a, a spiritual life with which I am comfortable, mm-hmm. uh, but it is not based on religion. No. But when you think about Lydia, you, you must draw on that sure. life experience. Absolutely, yeah. prayer is something I'm very comfortable with. I mean, I was raised that way. I think they're beautiful. Uh, so learning that kind of uh, language is, is something that appeals to me. The work ethic, I uh, certainly draw on that. Uh, the devotion to God, meaning it's not about you or me. It's about being in service to God. Uh, that's very familiar to me. Um, don't make it about yourself. Consider others. I was going to say kindness, but I don't suppose that applies to Lydia, does it? <laughs> not on no. the surface. No. Now, now, the measure of how much your enactment of Lydia has gotten into the culture really became clear at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Oh, God. Right? When yeah. Michelle Wolf, the comedian doing her famous bit, much of which focused on Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, directed uh, in, in one of her jokes about her, it was referring to your character. Here's the bit of that. And of course we have Sarah Huckabee Sanders. We are graced with Sarah's presence tonight. I have to say I'm a little starstruck. I love you as Aunt Lydia and the Handmaid's Tale. (laughs) Mike Pence, if you haven't seen it, you would love it. The LA Times asked you what you thought, and you wrote, I assume you and not your publicist wrote, um, this beautiful uh, response, which I happen to have here. Oh, how nice of you. (laughs) Uh, Do you want me to read it? I would love you to read it. Uh, From my experience, Lydia is a straightforward person with a low tolerance for confusion and nonsense. Had she been offered the job of press secretary for the present administration, she most likely would have turned it down. Also, Lydia has the comfort of believing that everything she says and does is in service to God. Miss Sanders has no such luxury. Nicely said. Well, and I also, I didn't want to insult her, you see. I don't know. No, it was classy. Oh, good. Thank you. And thoughtful. Thank you. And smart. Let's talk about another performance that got you another Emmy nomination, Patty Levin uh, on The Leftovers. Here's a clip from the second season. It is a um, very complicated situation, but you're kind of hunting uh, Justin Theroux's character, Kevin. He confronts you in the woods and says he knows somebody who will help exercise you. So what? He knows what you are. He knows how to get rid of you. And why the fuck are you out here in the woods calling for me? This man gave you a solution, and you ran. You think I'm scared to do battle with you? 
Oh, Kevin. I am so desperate to do battle. So let's go. Let's go back. Right now. Let's go fucking die. So we shot that for a bit. Huh. In the deep in the woods, how pretty are those woods? Yeah. This is in Austin, Texas. And that scene, uh, I mean, you socked him. Did, did, was that a real slap? Do you know what? I'm embarrassed to tell you that it was, and it shouldn't have been, because I'm old enough to know you don't do it for real. That's why they have stage combat, and he's a trooper. He should have slugged me back, uh, because that, I mean, I hauled off and whacked him. And that was that was a one take sock. Well, that was. I mean, afterward, I felt terrible about it, and he was very generous and kind. But yes, I did, in fact, hit him. You method actor. You. How awful. That's yeah. terrible. Yeah. It really is. Patty was another kind of scary character. Are, are you okay with being typecast as these terrifying people? Yeah, my husband said, um, you should be, I mean, don't you want to play someone who's, like, nice? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I don't know. I never think about it. Typecast. I don't know. And I love going to the lower depths. I just think that's a ticket to heaven. Yeah. It seems to me that you are an example of one of several people who... This is is a kind of golden age for middle-aged great actresses. I mean, Laurie Metcalf. Oh, God, she's so good. You, Margot Martindale, a bit older. Um, But, like, all these... People doing great work, and and we now know their names in a way that, like, isn't that wonderful? Twenty years ago, we wouldn't. No, you're right. I think that's fantastic. I, I couldn't be, honestly. Well, I couldn't be more grateful, but and that is the truth. But when you see women are fascinating human beings, men are too. But a woman's story? Are you kidding? And life is more interesting as you get older. Yeah, I, I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, it's so much more. Uh, there's so much more to it. Um, I mean. I think it's tremendously underrated in some ways. Physically, it's a bit of an, a nuisance. But uh, emotionally and otherwise, oh, my gosh, you're just getting started, really, aren't you? And you let go of this and you let go of that. And you think, what was I worried about that for? No, no, no. Let go of the controls. Drop the armor. Don't need it. Yeah. That's kind of a lovely thing. Yeah. Um, and Dowd, you're a pleasure to, to watch so are in, you. Uh, on, on television and movie theaters, but in real life as well. I wish people could see you when you, when you talk. Your very expressive face. Really? And your thoughts are so going... So it's not just a face for radio, you're telling <laughs> no, me. No, I'm saying I wish you could film this. It's very good. And out, uh, really, a delight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I spoke with Ann Dowd last fall. She's currently filming, and this seems perfect, a remake of Hitchcock's Rebecca, which is also starring Kristen Scott Thomas, Lily James, and Army Hammer. Coming up next. Pregnancy was the great adventure, it seems now. The great bravery. The epic adventure that lasts nine months. To allow my lungs to be doubled in size, as it said in the books. To submit to the gulping placenta. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. The Testaments, Margaret Atwood's new sequel to her novel The Handmaid's Tale, is coming out next month. So this hour, we're having a think about and around The Handmaid's Tale, a book 
that's at least as resonant now as when it came out 34 years ago. As you probably know by now, The Handmaid's Tale is set in the near future, after American society collapses from a fertility crisis and a civil war, this totalitarian regime called Gilead takes over and enslaves the remaining women who are fertile. From children of men to alien, pregnancy has come up a lot in modern science fiction, often pregnant women requiring rescue by dudes. But lately, there have been quite a few stories set in dystopias about pregnant women who are the unambiguous heroes. Studio 360's Zoe Saunders explores this new subgenre, starting with Louise Erdrich reading from her latest novel. You have eyebrows, eyelashes, even a little hair. Your footprints and fingerprints are legible now, and the complex components of your eyes have formed even though... You will not open your lids for a couple of weeks. Sight is the last sense to develop. The nerve connections in your hands are still perfecting themselves. Your brain, the big question mark, has been making 5,000 neurons every minute ever since you were four weeks old. Every nerve cell can make 10,000 connections. All along, the neurons have been steadily migrating to their destinations. I guess they just know where to go from the moment they are formed. They travel in waves, millions every day, moving along glial pathways. You've got all of your neurons now, billions and billions, and with every second, two million new connections are made between them. More connections than stars in the sky. That's from Louise Erdrich's novel, Future Home of the Living God. The main character, Cedar Songmaker, is a young Native American woman who finds out that she's pregnant just as society is beginning to crumble. She's speaking here to her unborn child. Cedar Songmaker's really talking to herself about what's happening to her physically. And in a way, your first pregnancy is an incredibly abstract, strange process. So everything inside her is changing. And it makes women intellectually precocious at the time because we have to try and absorb this very abstract thing that's happening. How can you believe there's another entire individual that you are forming inside of yourself? You know, it's happening all the time. But it's crazy. I had my son when I was fairly young, when I was 25, and I just had this real fascination in the fact that you could create another whole life. The novelist Megan Hunter found her own pregnancy to be kind of a potboiler. It seemed this kind of endlessly fascinating thing to be. So it's not really a surprise that I've written a book about this in the end. Her book is The End We Start From. And like Erdrich's, it begins with a pregnant woman in a dystopian scenario. There's so many types of stories you can tell about having children. So why science fiction? Pregnancy is science fiction. <laughs> That's Parley Ann Boswell, professor emeritus at Eastern Illinois University. She wrote a book called Pregnancy in Literature and Film. It's the idea that you have your own body and all of a sudden you're sharing it with an alien. Something in there that's making you throw up (laughs) or making you sick, that's changing the shape of your body and you have no control. Oh my goodness, I'm sharing my body with someone I don't know. (laughs) And he's not giving me much sleep and I'm losing my life. It's very frightening, and 
it's difficult in ways that we don't ever talk about, except in science fiction. <laughs> That's where we talk about it. Pregnancy was the great adventure, it seems now, the great bravery, to allow my lungs to be doubled in size, as it said in the books, to submit to the gulping placenta. It is only humans and monkeys who let the fetus feed from their own blood supply, I read. Only humans and monkeys who let their young release themselves back into the mother, float themselves into her, minute explorers. In Hunter's book, an unnamed new mother and her newborn infant face hardship alone, on the run from rising floodwaters. But to her, the extreme weather outside seems almost banal compared to the truly awesome science happening inside her womb. There's a sci-fi dimension and there's a slightly uncanny sense to it. I remember being really shocked when I read that the cells of fetuses were found in the mother's brain. You know, I found some scientific article about that. So when the baby is, is in the womb, their cells actually go up into your brain. I just thought, what? You know, why has nobody ever told me this? That is just a kind of really shocking fact. I can't believe this is even physically possible. This can't work. This can't work. It doesn't make any sense. The sensation of getting bigger and bigger was one of the major experiences I would have. Um, and I felt that way when I was pregnant, this growing sense of claustrophobia because, like, the world is the same size at all times. Chairs are the same. Everything else is the same size. But you, or me personally, or, the you know, whoever is pregnant, is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're sort of like that, that strange sense where you're half asleep and all of a sudden you have this sort of out-of-body experience where you are vast. You're suddenly so big that you can't imagine that you can be contained by a world. But that's almost what it's like. Like, you really are getting bigger and bigger and the world is staying the same. I was interested in that experience of just suddenly realizing at a certain point you come home from the hospital, you're holding your new baby and everything has completely changed. And perhaps then you look out the window and you see, okay, everything hasn't completely changed. But it's just changed for me. But then um, it feels like that, you know, and, and I think the book was in some ways an exploration of, you know, what if that really was the case, everything really had changed and that sort of metaphorical flooding was a real flooding. So while these characters are thinking obsessively about the weird transformations going on inside their bodies, those thoughts are complicated and threatened by what's going on in the world outside. In Erdrich's story, Unexplained changes in biology have created a reproductive crisis, and all pregnant women are kept under lock and key. In Hunter's story, a catastrophic flood has turned England into a desperate refugee camp. I think we all give birth into uncertain times and into our own particular kind of circumstances of change and, and of disruption. Obviously, some people far, far more than others. And in the book, she is in a very particular, perilous, dangerous situation. So her waters break, the flood happens. Um, I was interested in the image of the amniotic fluid that the baby is growing in and, and the links between those really. And, you know, there's a certain quality in which the whole book is about the motherhood experience, but within this particular context. And faced with these threats, the mothers switch over to survival mode. We as a culture often view pregnant women as helpless and less than. But these stories show the strength and tenacity and resolve that mothers can marshal. 
what motivates her, and I think it's what motivates a lot of women at some point, is a kind of rage to see this through and to see your baby and to really survive. And she has that. She has a survivor's instincts. There is anyway a very instinctive sense when you have a baby that you absolutely just have to keep them alive. <laughs> you know, it's very visceral. I remember becoming obsessed with were my children breathing, when they stopped breathing. And I think that takes on a different, you know, texture, a different shape in the book because she's in a life-threatening situation sometimes. And so that sense of, of needing to survive, of needing him to survive, is all the stronger. In these two novels, the women have to draw on their own strength. Both of the women have been abandoned by their husbands, who caved under pressure. But what about when the threat comes from men? Like in The Handmaid's Tale, where men try to control pregnancy. In the face of a fertility crisis, women are kept as baby-making slaves. You girls will serve the leaders of the faithful and their barren wives. You will bear children for them. Or in Mad Max Fury Road, where the warlord Immortan Joe holds women captive as sex slaves or breeders to bear his children. And I, that's my child, my but in Erdrich and Hunter's novels, women aren't shackled by their pregnancies. They're empowered. When men write about it, it's interesting to me because they are almost in awe of what women can do. And when women write about it, we are terrified of what men can do. It's about being controlled, almost always, when women write about it. And when men write about it, like in Dune, it's like the women have this enormous power that nobody can figure out. And it makes complete sense that our sense as women is we are going to be controlled. And we can be controlled because we become less and less physically agile. We become more helpless. And that's maybe the most frightening thing about being pregnant. You know, it's something that men don't experience. Pregnancy narratives, especially those generated by women, are about pregnant women as warriors. What is more difficult than giving birth? Nothing. And uh, women are heroes. We are the warriors, the ones who give birth. And, uh, of course, women become the heroes of their stories. Pregnancy allows that. With the Me Too movement and escalating threats to abortion access, women's autonomy and rights can feel like a battlefield these days. But here's the thing with battlefields. Soldiers are tested and warriors emerge. I think this is the coming fear for lots of people. Pregnancy and who decides who gets pregnant, who decides how a pregnancy proceeds or doesn't. I'm guessing that within the next year or two, we will see more projections of pregnancy in film and fiction. And it will also have something to do with who's in charge of pregnancy, which is something that all science fiction asks us to consider. And no matter how dark this dystopian fiction gets, there's something inherently hopeful about these maternity tales. Erdrich's heroine, Cedar Songmaker, remains optimistic about the future, despite all evidence that the end is nigh. At this point in the, in the book, Cedar and her mother are in a U.S. Postal Service truck. And 
They are going somewhere unknown, and her mother is very depressed about what's happening. She feels that they're living through hell on earth, but Cedar really doesn't, and this is what she tells her mother. Here's something strange, Mom. Please just hear me out. I have this feeling, as I carry this baby into life, that things aren't really going backward. Things aren't really falling apart. All that is happening, even the purest chaos, physical and personal, even political, is basically all right. I know it seems naive. You might even say it's hormones. But the feeling is so powerful that I have to tell you, I am happy. A baby brings sort of the presence of the future into the present. There's a hope that things are open and that things are possible and that things are always changing and that we don't know and that that uncertainty holds a kind of trace of hope. Pregnancy becomes a seed of hope in a world gone mad where we don't understand what's going on or it's falling apart. Absolutely, pregnancy becomes the only thing that makes sense. I am happy at the very pit of myself. I feel this stupid joy, a sense of existence, a pleasure in the senseless truth. We happen to be alive. We didn't ask for it. We just are. That story was produced by Zoe Saunders, and you can find out more about Louise Erdrich, Megan Hunter, and Parley Ann Boswell on our website, studio360.org. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our production team consists of... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Andrew Adam Newman. Sandra Lopez Monsalve. Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. Newsflash, you're not my father, fat ass! Thanks for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Hi, I'm Maeve Higgins. I'm a writer and a comedian usurping Kurt Anderson. Next time on Studio 360. I grew up really loving soap operas. That was my main mode of storytelling from like a very young age. How playwright Michael R. Jackson got the bug. I wanted to write soaps and I never actually got to do that because I sort of fell in love with playwriting. I hope that you join me next time on Studio 360. Thank you.